welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 5, Forward to Adventure. For some time, the voyage of the Abraham Lincoln was marked by no particular incident. However, there was just one incident that threw into relief the marvelous skill of Ned Land and showed how right we were to have such confidence in him. On the 30th of June, off the Falkland Islands, the frigate met some American whalers, and we learned that they had heard nothing new about the narwhal. But one of them, the captain of the Monroe, Hearing that Ned Land was on board the Abraham Lincoln asked for his help in hunting a whale that had been sighted. Commander Farragut, who was anxious to see Ned Land at work, authorized him to go on board the Monroe. The Canadian had good luck, for instead of one whale, he harpooned two in quick succession. One of the whales was struck through the heart, while the other one was caught after a few minutes' chase. I decided that if the monster ever met Ned, I would not bet on the monster." With great speed, the frigate skirted the southeast coast of America. On the 3rd of July, we reached the entrance of the Strait of Magellan, off Cape Vigiers. But Commander Farragut would not follow such a tortuous passage, and altered his course so as to sail around Cape Horn. Unanimously, the crew agreed with him. After all, was it likely that they would meet the narwhal in this narrow strait? A good number of the sailors said that the monster could never get through that passage. He is much too big for that. About 3 p.m. on July 6th, the Abraham Lincoln, now 15 miles farther south, rounded that solitary island that lost rock at the extremity of the American continent to which Dutch sailors had given the name of their native town, Cape Horn. The course was set northwest, and the next day the frigate's propeller was at last churning the waters of the Pacific Ocean. "'Keep your eyes peeled,' the sailors of the Abraham Lincoln kept saying." And indeed, all eyes were kept wide open, for both eyes and glasses, to tell the truth, were a bit dazzled by the prospect of a $2,000 reward, and did not rest for a moment. Day and night, all kept a close watch over the sea. Those who could see better during the day, and those who could see better at night, were competing equally for the prize. Even I, for whom money has little charm, was by no means the least attentive man on board. Taking only a few minutes off from my meals, snatching a few hours sleep, and indifferent to sun and rain, I was up on deck all the time. Whether I leaned on the forecastle rail or the taffrail, my eager eye took in the downy foam that whitened the sea as far as the eye could see. How often I shared the feelings of the captain's staff and the crew when some capricious whale suddenly showed its dark back above the waves. In a moment, the deck would be crowded. Cabins would pour forth a stream of sailors and officers each with heaving chest and anxious eye, all watching the movement of that animal. I stared and stared until I was nearly blinded, while Conseil, phlegmatic as always, would repeat calmly, If Monsieur would not strain his eyes so much, he would see better. How frustrating it was that Abraham Lincoln would alter its course and make for the animal a simple whale or a common cachalot, which would soon disappear amid a hail of curses. However, the weather held good. We were conducting our search under the most favorable conditions— was the bad season in the southern hemisphere, whose July corresponds to our January in Europe. But the sea remained calm and could be easily scanned for a great distance. Ned Land continued to be stubbornly incredulous. He even pretended not to watch the sea except when he was on duty, unless, of course, a whale had been sighted. His marvelous sight might have proved very useful to us, 
but eight hours out of twelve the obstinate Canadian would be reading or sleeping in his cabin. Again and again I reproached him for his detachment. Bah, he would reply, there's nothing here, Monsieur Aranat, and if there were some animal, what chance should we stand of spotting it? After all, aren't we just looking at random? We're told that the elusive animal has been sighted again in the Pacific, admittedly, but two months have already passed since then, and judging by the temperament of your narwhal, it isn't much like hanging around in the same area. On the contrary, he has an extraordinary ability to move from one place to another. Now, Professor, you know better than I do that nature doesn't do anything contrary to good sense, and it wouldn't give a naturally slow animal the ability to move quickly if it had no need of that ability. So, if the beast exists at all, it must be far away by now. I did not know what to say to this. Obviously, we were sailing blindly. But how else should we proceed? True, our chances were very limited, but as yet, no one doubted that we should be successful, and there wasn't a sailor on board who had not laid odds on the narwhal, and on its appearing soon. On July 20th, we cut the Tropic of Capricorn at longitude 105 degrees, and seven days later, on the 27th, we crossed the equator on the 110th meridian. Having taken these bearings, and the frigate now followed a decidedly western course, and scoured the central waters of the Pacific, Captain Farragut felt, and with good reason, that it was better to stay in deep waters and keep clear of continents and islands, which the beast itself seemed to avoid, probably because there wasn't enough water for it, as the boatsman said. After refueling, the frigate sailed past the Tuamotu Islands, the Marquesas, and the Sandwich Islands, crossed the Tropic of Cancer at longitude 132 degrees, and made for the China Seas. At last we were in the area where the monster had last been reported, and truly we no longer lived normal lives. The hearts of all aboard palpitated so wildly that we all risked developing some incurable aneurysm. The entire crew were in a state of nervous excitement that I could scarcely describe. They would not eat, they would no longer sleep, and twenty times a day some error or some optical illusion suffered by a sailor perched upon the rigging would get us all worked up into a sweat. Such sensations, repeated twenty times, kept us in such a state of tension that there were bound to be some reaction soon. And the reaction did set in. For three months, during which every day seemed like an age, the Abraham Lincoln plowed the waters of the North Pacific, running at whales, deviating sharply from her course, veering from one tack to another, stopping suddenly, putting on steam, or backing up again at the risk of wrecking her machinery. Not a single area between the coast of Japan and the coast of America did we leave unexplored, but to no avail. We saw nothing but a vast expanse of deserted sea, nothing that resembled a gigantic narwhal or a submerged island, a piece of wreckage or a shifting reef, or indeed anything at all that was out of the ordinary. And so the reaction came. First of all, despondency set in, and this led the way to incredulity. A new atmosphere developed on board, consisting of three-tenths of shame and seven-tenths of fury. The men felt that they had been bloody fools, and to let themselves be taken in by something utterly fantastic. But their anger was even greater. The various lines of argument that had been built up over the past year collapsed, like a pack of cards, and all that anyone could think of was of making up the for all the time that had been so stupidly sacrificed by eating or sleeping as much as possible. The natural fickleness of the human mind led from one extreme to the other. The most ardent supporters of the enterprise thus became the most fanatical opponents. 
The reaction mounted and spread throughout the ship, from the coal trimmers to the ward room, and certainly had it not been for the resolute determination of Commander Farragut, the frigate would surely have turned south again. However, the useless search could not go on. The Abraham Lincoln had nothing to reproach herself for. She had done her best. Never had an American crew shown more zeal or patience, and they could not be blamed for the failure. Even so, there was nothing to do but to turn back. Such, then, were the arguments presented to the captain. But he resisted them, and the morale of the men who made no attempt to hide their discontent deteriorated greatly. I will not say that there was a spirit of mutiny on board, but after holding out for a reasonable period, Captain Farragut, like Columbus before him, asked the crew to be patient for just three more days. If when within three days the monster had not appeared, the man at the helm would give three turns to the wheel, and the Abraham Lincoln would make for the Atlantic. This promise, made on the 2nd of November, had the effect of rallying the crew, and each kept scanning the ocean for, with renewed enthusiasm. Every man hoped to cast the final glance that would give a final touch to his impressions. Spyglasses were used with feverish activity. This was the extreme challenge to the giant narwhal, who could not now reasonably fail to appear and defy that challenge. Two days went by. The steam of the Abraham Lincoln was at half pressure. We tried a thousand tricks to attract the attention of the animal, to rouse it from its apathy in case it was roaming in that area. We trailed enormous slices of bacon in our wake, but only the sharks derived satisfaction from this, I must admit. Small craft radiated in all directions from the Abraham Lincoln as she lay to, and left not one corner of the sea unexplored. But the night of November 4th came, and this mystery of the deep was still unsolved. Next day, the 5th of November, at midday, the three days' delay requested by Farragut was to expire, and the commander, faithful to his promise, would have to set his course for the southeast and abandon the North Pacific for good. The frigate was then at latitude 31 degrees 15 minutes north and longitude 136 degrees 42 minutes east. The coast of Japan was still less than 200 miles to leeward. Night was falling. They had just sounded eight bells. Large clouds hid the face of the moon, which was then in its first quarter. The sea rippled peacefully under the bow of our ship. I was leaning over the starboard rail. Conseil, standing next to me, was looking straight ahead. The crew perched on the rat lines were scanning the horizon, which was gradually contracting and growing darker. The officers were scrutinizing the gathering gloom through their night glasses. Now and again the somber ocean glistened as a ray of moonlight darted between the frigate fringes of two clouds. The next moment all trace of light would be shut out by the darkness. Looking at Conseil, I realized that the good fellow must, must be feeling something, however little, of the general excitement. At least, so I thought. Perhaps for the first time he was intrigued and his nerves were tingling. Come on, Conseil, I said to him. Here is your last chance to pocket two thousand dollars. If Monsieur will permit me to say so, I never counted on getting the prize, and if the government of the Union had promised me one hundred thousand dollars, they would have been none the poorer for it. You are right, Conseil. It has been a silly business after all, and we got involved in it too lightheartedly. What a lot of wasted time and pointless excitement. We would have been back in France since six months ago. We should have been in Monsieur's apartment, he added, in Monsieur's museum. But now I should have classified all Monsieur's fossils and the Barbarossa would be installed in a cage in the Jardin des Plas, arousing people's curiosity and attracting many visitors. Just as you say, Conseil, but not only that, now we will probably be made fun of into the bargain. I don't think there's much doubt about it, that. 
Conseil replied quietly. I imagine they will make fun of Monsieur, but may I say? You may, Conseil. Well, Monsieur will only be getting what he deserves. Really? When one has the honor of being a learned man like Monsieur, one should not expose oneself to. Conseil did not finish his compliment. Amid the silence, all around a voice had just rung out. It was the voice of Ned Land, and Ned was shouting, Ahoy! There it is at last! A beam to leeward! Chapter 6 Full Steam Ahead Ned's shout brought the whole crew running helter-skelter in the direction of the harpooner. The captain, the officers, the boat swain, sailors, cabin boys, and all right down to the engineers who left their engines and the stokers who abandoned their furnaces. The order had been given to heave to, and the frigate was just drifting to a stop. It was pitch dark by then, and although the Canadian's sight was very good, I wonder how he had managed to see what he had seen. My heart was beating like a sledgehammer. But Ned Land had not made a mistake, and now we could all see the object he was pointing at. Two cables lengths away from the Abraham Lincoln on her starboard quarter, the sea seemed to be illuminated from below. It was no mere phenomenon of phosphorescence, and there was no mistaking it. The monster was submerged a few fathoms beneath the surface, and was radiating that intense but inexplicable light that had been mentioned in the reports of several captains. This magnificent radiation must have been produced by some enormously powerful source of light, for the luminous area formed a huge, elongated oval, the center of which was intensely bright, and whose brilliancy gradually decreased in the distance. "'That's only a mass of phosphorescent organisms,' said one of the officers. "'No, sir, certainly not,' I replied. "'Faux lads in Salpe never produce such a powerful light. "'That brightness definitely has an electric quality, "'and besides, look, it's moving, it's swerving, it's coming straight at us!' "'A chorus of cries rose from the frigate. "'Silence!' shouted the captain. "'Helm reverse engines!' Seamen and engineers hurried to their stations. The engines were reversed, and the Abraham Lincoln, beating to port, described a semicircle. "'Right, helm, go ahead!' cried Commander Farragut. These orders were carried out, and the frigate moved rapidly away from the blinding light. Did I say move away? I should have said tried to move away, but that mysterious and uncanny animal came toward us at a speed that was twice our own. We gasped for breath. Amazement more than fear rendered us speechless and motionless. The animal was not only gaining on us, but seemed to be playing with us. It circled the frigate, which was speeding at fourteen knots, and immersed it in a brilliant glow of what seemed to be luminous dust. Then it withdrew two or three miles, leaving behind it a phosphorescent trail resembling whirlwinds of vapor streaming behind a fast-moving train. Suddenly, out of the dark circle of the horizon, where it had gone to gain momentum, the monster rushed with incredible speed toward the Abraham Lincoln, stopped short within twenty feet of it, and vanished. Not by plunging beneath the waters, since its brilliant glow did not diminish gradually, but instantaneously, as if the source of its dazzling light had been suddenly cut off. Then it reappeared on the other side of the ship, having either sped around or swum underneath it. At any moment a collision could have occurred that would have been fatal for us. I was astonished, however, at the maneuvers of our frigate. It was fleeing and not attacking. It was being pursued instead of pursuing. I called Commander Farragut's attention to this. His usually impassive demeanor had changed to one of indescribable astonishment. Monsieur Aranax, he replied, I do not know what terrible creature I have to contend with, and I do not want to run foolish risks with my frigate in this darkness. Besides, how can one attack the unknown or defend oneself against it? Let us wait for daylight, and the roles will be reversed. Have you any longer any doubts as to the nature of this monster? 
No, sir, obviously. It's a gigantic narwhal, but an electric one, too. Perhaps, I suggested, we can get no closer to it than we could chase a numfish or an electric eel. That may well be, replied the captain, and if it po possesses the power to electrocute, then it is certainly the most terrible animal ever to have been fashioned by the hand of the creator. That's why, sir, I must be on my guard. No one thought of sleeping, and the crew were on their feet all night long. The Abraham Lincoln, being unable to compete as regards speed, sailed slowly with reduced steam. The narwhal, on the other hand, imitating the frigate, was just riding the waves, and seemed to have decided not to abandon the area of the conflict. However, toward midnight it disappeared, or, to use a more appropriate expression, it went out, like a big glowworm. Had it fled? This was more to be feared than hoped for, but at seven minutes to one in the morning we heard a deafening hiss, like a jet of water gushing forth with great force. Commander Farragut, Ned Land, and I were on the poop, peering eagerly into the inking darkness. "'Ned Land,' asked the captain, "'you have often heard whales roar, haven't you?' "'Very often, sir, but never a whale the sight of which earned me two thousand dollars.' "'Of course the prize is yours, but tell me, isn't that the noise that cetaceans make when they blow water through their vents?' It's the same noise, sir, but that's very much louder, but there's no mistaking it. That's certainly some kind of cetacean nearby. With your permission, sir, added the harpooner, we'll have a few words with him tomorrow when daybreak comes. If he is prepared to listen to you, Master Land, I replied, feeling somewhat unconvinced. If I could just get within four harpoonlings, retorted the Canadian, he would have to listen to me. But to approach him, went on the captain, shouldn't I put a whaleboat at your disposal? Certainly, sir. "'But wouldn't that be risking the lives of my men?' "'Yes, and mine, too,' the harpooner replied simply. "'At about two o'clock in the morning the luminous glow reappeared, "'just as intense, five miles to windward of Abraham Lincoln. "'In spite of the distance, and in spite of the noise of wind and sea, "'one could distinctly hear the formidable threshing of the beast's tail, "'and even its panting breath. "'It seemed that when the enormous narwhal came to the surface of the ocean— Air poured into its lungs like steam being sucked into the vast cylinders of a 2,000-horsepower engine. Hmm, I thought. A whale with the strength of cavalry regiment would be some whale indeed. So we remained on the alert until daybreak, preparing for the fight. The fishing gear was laid out along the rails. The second-in-command loaded the blunderbushes, which could fire harpoons as far as a mile, and the long duck guns, which would fire explosive bullets capable of inflicting mortal wounds on even the biggest animals. Ned Land had sharpened his harpoon, a terrible weapon in his hands. Day began to break at six o'clock, and with the first crack of dawn the narwhal's brilliant light went out. At seven o'clock the day was fairly bright but a dense morning mist was gathering on the horizon, and the best spyglasses could not pierce it, so everyone was disappointed and angry. I climbed up on the mizzenmast. Some officers were already perched on the mastheads. At eight o'clock, the fog lying heavily on the waves began to rise little by little in thick scrolls. The horizon grew wider and clearer. Suddenly, just as on the day before, we heard Ned Land's voice, "'There it is! On the port quarter!' cried the harpooner. All eyes turned in the direction he had indicated. There, a mile and a half from the frigate, a long black body emerged a yard above the surface, its tail thrushing with about violently, which was causing a considerable turmoil. Never did a tail whip up the waters with such force, and as the animal moved, it left in its wake an immense, brilliantly white, foamy furrow. The frigate approached the cetacean, and I studied it calmly and dispassionately. The reports by the Shannon and the Helvetia 
had somewhat exaggerated its dimensions, for I estimated its length at only 250 feet. As for its width, I found this difficult to judge, but as a whole the animal seemed to me to be admirably proportioned in all dimensions. As I was watching this phenomenal creature, two jets of steam and water shot out of its vents to a height of about 120 feet, which enabled me to ascertain its means of breathing. I reached the definite conclusion that it belonged to the vertebrates, class of mammals, subclass of monodelphians, division of pisiforms, order of cetaceans, family of... I could not make up my mind. The order of cetaceans consisted of three families, whales, cachalots, and dolphins, and the narwhals belong to the last of these. Each of these families is divided into several genera, each genus into species, and each species into varieties. The variety, species, genus, and the family had yet to be established, but I did not doubt that with the aid of Providence and Commander Farragut, I should complete my classification. Impatiently, the crew were awaiting orders. The captain, after having observed the animal attentively, sent for the engineer, who came running up. "'Sir?' asked the captain. "'Have you got up steam?' "'Yes, sir,' replied the engineer. "'Good. Then stoke up your fires, and full speed ahead!' Three cheers greeted this order. The hour to join battle had struck. A few seconds later, the frigate's two funnels were vomiting forth clouds of black smoke, and the deck trembled with the vibrations of the boilers. Abraham Lincoln, driven forward by her powerful screw, made straight for the animal, which, with apparent indifference, allowed the ship to approach to within half a cable's length. Then, disdaining to dive, it pretended to flee, but it moved only fast enough to maintain its distance. This pursuit lasted about three-quarters of an hour, without the frigates gaining as much as five yards on the cetacean. It was obvious that, at this rate, we should never catch up with it. Commander Farragut, enraged, tugged at the thick tuft of his hair that bristled beneath his chin. "'Ned Land!' he cried. The Canadian came running up. "'Well, Master Land,' asked the captain, "'do you still advise me to put out the boats?' "'No, sir,' replied Ned Land. "'That animal is going to be caught only with his permission.' "'Well, what shall we do, then?' "'Put on more steam, sir, if you can. "'With your permission, I'll post myself under the bowsprit, "'and if we get within a harpoon's length, I'll harpoon it.' "'Go ahead, Ned,' replied Har Commander Farragut. "'Engineer, more pressure!' "'So Ned Land went out under the bowsprit. "'The fires were stoked up even higher, "'and the propeller accelerated to forty-three revolutions per minute, "'so that steam was shooting out of the valves. "'Heaving the log, we calculated that Abraham Lincoln "'was making eight-point-five knots.' but the accursed beast was also moving at 18.5 knots. For another hour the frigate kept up this pace without gaining as much as a fathom. This was humiliating for one of the fastest ships in the American Navy. The sailors angrily cursed the beast, which, however, did not deign to reply. The captain was no longer twisting his beard. He was chewing it. The engineer was summoned again. "'Have you reached maximum pressure?' the captain asked him. "'Yes, sir,' replied the engineer. "'And your valves are charged at?' at six and a half atmospheres, then charge them at ten atmospheres. A typical American command, if I ever heard one, a steamboat captain in one of these competitive races on the Mississippi couldn't have done better to shake off pursuit. Conseil, I said to my faithful servant who stood by my side, do you realize that we will probably blow up? As monsieur pleases, replied Conseil. However, I will admit that it was a risk I was prepared to take. The valves were charged, coal was poured into the furnaces, the fans blew torrents of air into the braziers. The Abraham Lincoln's speed increased, her mass trembled to their very steps, and the billows of, billows of smoke could scarcely shoot through the narrow funnels. The log was heaved again. "'Well, Mr. Helmsman,' 
asked Commander Farragut. Nineteen and three-tenths knots, sir. Stoke up the fires! The engineer obeyed. The pressure gauge was now showing ten atmospheres, but it seemed that the cetacean was also getting up steam, and for without straining itself, it also moved at nineteen and three-tenths knots. What a chase! How can I describe this excitement that made me tremble all over? Ned Land stayed at his post, harpoon in hand. Several times the animal allowed us to approach it. "'We're catching up on him! We're gaining on him!' the Canadian would cry. Then, just as he was getting ready to strike, the cetacean would steal away at a speed that, in my opinion, could not be less than thirty miles an hour. Even when we were going at full speed, it actually taunted us by circling around us. A cry of fury broke from the crew. At midday, we had got no further than at eight o'clock in the morning. Commander Farragut therefore decided to employ more direct methods. "'So this animal can go faster than the Abraham Lincoln?' he said. "'All right. We'll see if it can move faster than these cannonballs. Man the forward gun!' The forecastle gun was immediately loaded and aimed. The shot left the barrel, but passed a few feet above the station, which was half a mile off. "'Someone with better aim!' cried the captain. Five hundred dollars to anyone who can pierce the hide of that infernal beast. An old gray-bearded gunner, I could see him now, with a steady eye and a calm expression, stepped up to the gun, swung it into a position, and aimed slowly and deliberately. There was a great boom, followed by the cheers of the crew. The shell hit the target, striking, but not penetrating the animal. Instead, the shot had glanced off the beast's rounded surface and was lost in the sea two miles away. "'Well, what do you say to that?' the old gunner exclaimed angrily. "'That thing must be covered with six-inch armored plating.' "'Confound the thing!' cried Commander Farragut. So the chase began again, and Commander Farragut, leaning toward me, said, "'I'll go after that beast until my ship blows up.' "'Yes,' I answered, "'and you're quite right to do so.' We had some hope that the animal would tire itself out and that it would not be insensitive to fatigue like a steam engine, but it was no use.' The hours dragged on without it showing the slightest sign of weariness. However, it must be said in praise of the Abraham Lincoln that that fine ship was putting up a tireless, determined fight. I reckon that she had traveled at least three hundred miles that unlucky day of November 6th. But eventually night fell and enveloped the choppy sea in darkness. I thought that our expedition was now over, and that we should never see the fantastic animal again, but I was mistaken. At about 10.50 p.m., the brilliant light reappeared about three miles to windward of the frigate, as clear and as bright as the night before. The narwhal seemed to be motionless. Perhaps he was tired after the day's exertions and was sleeping, letting himself drift on the waves. Here was a possibility that Commander Farragut intended to take advantage of. He gave his orders. The Abraham Lincoln was held at half-steam and advanced cautiously so as not to awake her adversary. It is not unusual to encounter whales sound asleep in mid-ocean that can successfully be attacked, and Ned Land had harpooned more than one as it slept. The Canadian returned to his post under the bowsprit. The frigate approached silently until it was two cable lengths away from the animal, stopped its engines, and drifted gently forward. On deck, one could have heard a pin drop. We were not a hundred feet from the luminous patch, which was growing brighter and dazzling us. At that moment, leaning over the forecastle rail, I could see Ned Land below me, grasping the martingale in one hand and brandishing his terrible harpoon with the other hand. He was barely twenty feet away from the motionless animal. Suddenly his arm straightened and the harpoon shot out. I heard a deep, ringing tone, as though he had struck a hard surface. Immediately the dazzling glow went out, 
and two enormous jets of water landed on the frigate's deck. The water swept like a torrent from one end of the ship to the other, knocking men over and breaking the lashing of the spars. There was a fearful jolt, and unable to retain my balance, I was flung over the rail out into the sea. Questions to consider after reading. How would you react to the $2,000 reward for citing the monster? Why does the monster keep disappearing? The incredulous Ned Land cites the monster first. How is this ironic? What do you think of the chase of the monster? Why do you think the monster charges the Abraham Lincoln? Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.